Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This series contains references to death and trauma associated with the Canterbury earthquakes and may be upsetting to some listeners. Rainy morning. We work as roofers. We sort of figured, you know, it's going to be no day. We'll be sleeping in. Got the phone call from Bruce. Hey, guys, no work today. This is James, a young roofer. Figures he's scored a lion, but no such luck. Uh, the weather cleared up, so we're all on bed and get the phone call, back work in half an hour. Um, yeah, everyone loves that phone call when you're head sleeping. So we'll jump in the cars and took off to work. Yeah, we're working on the CTV building. That name, that six-storey building, soon to be known by everyone in the country, stands on the corner of Cashel and Madras Streets in the Christchurch CBD. It gets its name from the local TV station, CTV, which occupies Level 2 and part of Level 1. But it also has a language school, King's Education, on Level 4, a medical centre, the clinic, on Level 5, and relationship services on part of Level 6. The building beside it was damaged in the first big Canterbury quake in September 2010. From zero to ten metres up, they had nothing on the walls, it would be a blocks. And then from there to the top, there was iron on the walls, so we'd gone through and put battens on the walls to put sheets of iron onto to make the building look good. The team spent the previous day prepping for wall cladding, and today they've papered the whole building ready for sheets of iron. We are just on the last sheet right on the front face of the corner. We'd unclipped a flashing, we were about halfway down. Bruce had just shot off to get us lunch. Um, he'd been working between us and the cherry picker that we were on. And we're about four and a half metres off the ground when the cherry picker just started bouncing. Look, look, just shaking up and down. And me and the guy that I was working with just looked at each other and we were just like, jump. Well, Susan, my wife, was a clinical psychologist and she had worked on advertising a lot in London. This is Richard Austin, a financial advisor. His wife is Susan Selway. She's a Kiwi, but when she came back to New Zealand, she studied and did her clinical psychology course at Canterbury University and got a, an amazing scholarship. I were only one of about four in New Zealand, so she's a really, really good psychologist. She really focused on emotion, which I guess being a, a male and a husband was... Um, it was always quite a lot of fun to have these discussions, men being fairly unemotional. 
Over a few years, she builds up a successful practice in the old girls' high building near Cranmer Square in Central Christchurch. That building is damaged in the earthquake in September 2010, so she moves on to another older building, Kenton Chambers. And then that gets damaged in the quake on Boxing Day 2010. So we sort of found a building that was going to be really good for her. It was in a big sort of clinical psychology clinic. And... um, But she couldn't move in straight away, so she moved into the CTV building for temporarily for about a month, six weeks, while she's waiting on this building to, um, to come free. Richard helps her move in and set up her office. And then in just a few weeks, it's February the 21st, Richard's in Auckland for business. He talks to Susan that night on the phone. The next day, February the 22nd, a Tuesday, he heads home to Christchurch. He's on the plane at 12.51. I remember looking out the window of the aeroplane and thinking, oh, looks like we're turning for some reason. No one had said anything. And so um, they turned the plane around and then told us that there had been an earthquake and the control tower had been evacuated and they were returning to Auckland. We landed and so I rang... Susan to see if she's okay. Her phone went through to her voicemail so I left her a message and then spoke to my two sons and they said they're okay but it was a really big earthquake and there was a lot of damage and buildings had collapsed. Richard heads up to the Koro Lounge. It was just chaos up there, everyone was up there. So I was standing watching the TV screen and they were showing all these shots of Christchurch and things. They then showed this huge big pile of rubble and then the camera sort of panned down and they had this sign in front of it which said um, Canterbury Television House. And I just looked at that and I thought, God, that's the building Susan's in. I'm Katie Gossett and this is Fragments, first-hand accounts of the February 2011 earthquake. The 6.3 magnitude quake strikes Christchurch at 12.51pm on February 22nd, killing 185 people. These personal stories and memories are collected in the weeks following the earthquake and together they build a greater understanding of one of the city's most devastating days. And I just thought, no, and something just told me to get out. And you'd just see this big pool of smoke over the city and I just looked out and I thought, God, that's CTV building. I got the sense that there were going to be people injured, unlike September 4, where we kind of got away with it, that we weren't going to be as lucky this time. She came along and she was just my mother in there, my mother there. To actually have to bypass people or just leave them where they were, it was really pretty tough. Episode 4, The CTV Building and Latimer Square. Well, the day of the earthquake, I work in the CTV building, and um, it was a a day as usual. Mary-Anne Jackson is a receptionist at CTV. She works on the ground floor. We'd had two shopping shows in the morning, quite a few clients in uh, for interviews. Then we had lunch. I, I went to lunch early. I came back about 25 past 12, uh, and it was just business as normal. It's a bit of a cold day, so most people stay in at lunchtime. 
Whereas if it had been a nice day, they would have been out. I'd been up with my boss, Murray Wood, who's a fantastic guy. And I'd been with him only minutes before the earthquake, and I'd been discussing, um, we were having a staff function on the Friday night, and I had been in with him. Um, he was great. He was his usual self, and he was, he's a great guy. The day carries on and then she's back upstairs again for a kind of belated morning tea for one of the young staff members. Tom, who we worked with, he'd been 21 on the Saturday and all the staff were invited and probably three quarters of the staff went to Tom's 21st because we all love Tom. And um, Maria Boss gave a speech and, you know, we had a great time. We got great photos of that night, luckily. And um, his grandparents had brought in morn um, morning tea and we'd had that. And luckily I took the dishes downstairs and, not and I didn't do the dishes upstairs because I would have been in the gone with the rest of them. The phone then rings in the reception area and she ducks back to her desk to take the call. I just hung up and I was standing at the side of my desk, luckily, because I wouldn't have had time to get up out of the seat and run out to the door. So luckily, when the earthquake happened, I was standing at, at the side of my desk and I held on to the desk and everything, it was horrific. Everything is moving and shards of glass from the foyer fly in at her. The staircase was beside my desk and that was coming, coming and going and going and coming and, and the noise was absolutely horrific. So. I knew I had to get out, even though quite a few of the staff members used to say to me, don't run out, I always ran out, when there was an earthquake, don't run outside, you're safe to get under your desk or under a door frame. But today, Marianne follows her instincts. I looked at my bag under the, my desk and my jacket on, on the back of my chair and I just thought, no. Something just told me to get out. We're just at work, sitting in the smoker shed, having our lunch. This is Tahu Huriwai, a carpenter. He's working over the road from the CTV building. We all keep joking about whether there's going to be another one or not. Another earthquake, that is. Yep, because we were working at St Paul's Church, restoring it from earthquake damage. And we all keep saying about if there's another one, it probably won't be standing. And uh, we're sitting in our smoker shed on top of the container. Looking out at it. So they're up quite high. It's a large shipping container and the smoko shed is on top of that. Tahu's colleague, Dan Perry, is there too. It was lunchtime. I was about to have a cup of tea actually, of all things. I was about to sit my cup of tea and then an earthquake struck. When the earthquake hit. Tahu Huriwai. And we all were looking, the door looked straight out to the church and the church just started falling down and falling towards us. And all the scaffold that was around it, there's lots of scaffold. It just come slammed into the tool container. We saw it whole tried to jump up but couldn't. And looking around at everyone, everyone's pretty scared. When we could we got up and out the door and jumped over the side of the container and out onto the street. Half the church had sort of collapsed down onto where we were. 
And if we're, where we're working was all flattened. We're just lucky we're having lunch. Ran down to the road pretty quick, straight across the road of the CTV building. Mm. So we saw that coming down. And it's all coming down around Mary Ann Jackson. It was like I was carried out because I don't know how I managed to even keep my feet on the ground because I was being thrown all around. And I think I hit my head slightly on the door going out and how I even managed to get the doors open, I don't know. Because the noise was horrific and I knew something major was happening upstairs. I didn't know the building was collapsing, but I knew something was breaking up upstairs. It was like an aeroplane or a train landing on the roof. It was horrific. She manages somehow to open the door and runs straight across Madras Street. Luckily the traffic had stopped and I just went to zoom. And as I ran, I sort of turned round and the building was coming down. And as I got to the corner, it was turned round, it was right down. And it was just, I couldn't believe it. I was standing there in a state of shock, absolutely shaking. Around her, people are running in all directions and screaming. I just stood there and just looked at it. I couldn't believe it and I thought I'm the only one that got out because I knew no one else followed after me. They, they couldn't get down the stairs, they just couldn't. As the CTV building falls, James and his workmate, who are in the cherry picker beside it, have taken a leap of faith. It was a split second decision, it was like, let's jump. As it happened, well, I jumped from the very corner, then Lenny came to where I was because he was controlling the machine and jumped. So he was you know, a few seconds behind me and he got hit by a couple of things of falling debris, so it could have been five more seconds and uh, our cherry picker would still be in it. Hit the ground and landed on my feet. Um, Lenny landed on his feet too, but yeah, obviously he got hit by something and sort of clumbled, you know, tumbled a bit. People have seen us um, jumping and said it was like we're in mid-air running, we were gone. His colleague needs to get going. And he was just like, mate, my family, oh, i got to go, I've got to go. So looked over at the work ute, the work ute's covered in a pile of rubble. Um, so he jumped in my, my four-wheel drive and took off. And that's sort of when I realised, like, hang on, there's got to be people in that building. James is wearing high-vis clothing. He runs up to the top of the pile of rubble. Yeah, you could hear people screaming and moved a couple of bits and pieces. I don't know what I moved. I, it's pretty, you know, vague of what really happened, and um, yeah, just started pulling people out of holes, and people were sort of just coming to you. I remember a couple of people came out, and then there was this lady just standing there screaming, "We've got kids! We've got kids!" Um, a baby came out. We passed a baby. By the stage, a couple of people would come up the pole with me, and um, yeah, we started passing people down, just in big human gang. And we just climbed up on the rubble. Tahu Huriwai is one of those who's rushed to help. Hear people screaming, and there's the fire going, which is very hot. We couldn't breathe much, but we just didn't really think about that, just kept going. We are just pulling things off the top, trying to see people. And that was the fifth floor, which wasn't very high. All the other floors were under us. It's a scene of confusion and emotion. A lot of people are on their phones trying to get hold of loved ones. You couldn't get through because they're so busy. Dan Perry. My girlfriend tried ringing me about five or six times and couldn't get through. I tried to ring her and... But at that, that, that time, it, yeah, like, you thought about it, like, you need to ring someone, but then you send out other people need help. So it's just human, you know, human instinct, you're going to help people. So we just, yeah, we just, me and she just shot across the road and, and yeah, just joined, the, joined the, the crowd, really, and started helping people. Oh, everyone was trying to get their cell phones going, trying to get hold of their family. Tahu Huriwai, 
I think that's the first little thing I was thinking about, whether my family was all right. My uh, missus was just about to have our second baby, and they were at home in an old brick house, which was already damaged from the last one. So I was hoping it was still standing after watching their work fall down and that. And Richard Austin is also thinking about his wife, Susan, who's in the CTV building. She's a real survivor, and so I thought, right, she's either not in there because she would have gone to lunch, or if she's in there, if anyone can get out of there, she'll get out of there. But what I did know is I just had to get back to Christchurch. But he can't get a flight. I sort of went under this really calm moment and decided that I would hire an aeroplane, which is sort of like what you do when you're in a calm moment. So I found this guy who happened to be standing there and he looked like a pilot. So I um, said to him, look, you know, are you involved in aviation? And he said, yep, I am. And he actually trained in New Zealand pilots. I said, look, we need to hire a plane and get down there. The airline trainer starts to make arrangements for a private jet. Some others, including TV journalists, overhear and say they'll come on the plane too. But then, another setback. This guy was busily on his cell phone talking to whoever he was talking to, and they said, look, the Christchurch airport's closed, so we're going to have to fly to Timaru and probably get a bus or taxi back. So that was fine. So... I got chatting to John Campbell from TV3 and all these people. We're all sort of huddled together and we're watching these, this TV in this room. And it was just, you know, got worse and worse. And I was starting to really, really worry. Then he catches a break. This guy walked into the building we're in and said, look, we've got a air ambulance that we're taking down to Christchurch. We've just delivered a child up to Starship Hospital that morning from Christchurch. We're going back, and we've got one seat. Would someone like it? And I just said, oh, well, that'll be me. In Christchurch, an official response to the disaster is starting to swing into gear. Ambulance officer Craig Stockdale is on duty. That day, on February the 22nd, at that time, at 12.51, I was at the St John station at 62 St Asim Street, having my lunch. And then the place just started to shake. Um, heard it coming and sort of thought, here we go again. Up until now, it's been a pretty slow morning. Things are about to change. Craig grabs his phone and makes a quick call home. Luckily, I got through. I just said, are you, you guys all right? She said, the house is trash, but we're OK. I said, radio. I don't know when I'll be home. Now he's free to get on with his day. My day that I knew was going to be changed forever. A day that will force them to make a lot of tough decisions. First up, they need to get their roller door sorted. It's fallen inwards and nine ambulances are stuck inside. Our building was, uh, for a better term, munted. And one of the guys that I worked with, um, bless his heart, got a, a, a spanner out and he was trying to unbolt the door and kind of came to the conclusion this was going to take too long so I said, look, we need a tow rope. Get a tow rope out of someone's car and attach the door to the 4 by 4 that's in there and we'll just tear the door inwards. Craig talks to comms to get a handle on what's happening around town and he's soon hearing that multiple buildings have collapsed. I got the sense from that that there were going to be people injured, unlike September 4 where we kind of got away with it, that we weren't going to be as lucky this time. 
Craig needs to work out where his staff can be most useful. Christchurch Hospital is still operational and can take casualties from the western side of the city. They need something else, a bit further east. There's talk that Latimer Square might be a good spot. To me that sounded like a, a reasonable decision at the time. Once the decision's made, Dave Berry is one of the first on the site. He's a senior fire officer and a member of Urban Search and Rescue, or USA. One of his roles is to be part of the advance party, so while the rest of the team assembles, he heads for Latimer Square, a stone's throw from the CTV building, which is now on fire. Me and the other two guys jumped in the helicopter. No doors, no seats, no nothing, and just flew across the city to um, Latimer Square. He could look down there and see the liquefaction and what was going on. He could see the smoke in the distance. Um, he didn't know whether it was smoke or dust at that stage. And we landed in Latimer Square, which is good, right there amongst it. They head straight away to the CTV building and talk to a fire officer there and discover there are no water supplies. So I just called a monsoon bucket in because the, the tower of the lift was blazing away. Huge when you saw it close up and what the hell was going on. People come up then and said there could be quite a few people trapped in the building. He does a recce around the building, works out that it's pancaked and that the floor he's now looking at, at ground level, is the fourth floor. There's no one in charge, so everything was sort of just a wee bit of chaos. With his fellow station officer handling the fire crews, people turn to him to make the USAR decisions. So basically I stood up there on the top of the CTV and started helping people or you know, running the place. Um, the people were coming to me, uh, my liaise with the police, um, the embos. Also up on top of the rubble is James, who'd been working on the building before it fell and jumped up to help people get out. The way I thought of it was that I'm pretty fit, I'm an able person and I could hear people in there, I knew there was people in there and sort of, you know, we had to get there, everyone was, there's a lot of people around, a lot of people, dare I say, not doing anything. I know everyone reacts differently and my instant reaction was to get up there and, and start doing something about it. Um, it's just what we do as Kiwis, isn't it? So he starts moving bits of debris aside. People were almost trapped from what we saw straight away in little rooms. Like you could, you'd pull coloured bits of rubble out from there and you'd get a pocket of people coming out and then there was more people over there so you'd move more stuff and then you know another lot of people would come out and it was pretty unreal eh, watching the people come out. Like how, how are you alive was like what was going through my head. I couldn't believe it. It was astonished to see the people coming out not injured the way you'd think they would be. I was expecting to see just squash, squash, nothing but able people walking out of the building. Across the road from her now destroyed workplace, Marianne Jackson is still getting her head around what's happened and the aftershocks keep coming. So I was wondering, you know, where am I going to run? Will I run along Cashel Street? And I just sort of stayed there for a minute, still in the state of shock, just glaring at the CTV building and people running all around me. Here was Tom and Penelope, who I worked with, he 19 and 21, in their car park, because the building just collapsed straight down and it pancaked. And they were standing in the car park and they just sort of appeared out of nowhere. So I ran straight over to them and um, we just hugged each other and just, you know, we just couldn't believe it. They were stunned and so was I. We didn't know who was in there. Well, I, I had seen quite a few people in there. And I was the last to see a lot of them. Gradually, relatives start to arrive. Joe Giles, who we work with, 
you know, lovely Jojo's daughter came, came look. She went not far away at Harcourt's. Samantha, she came along and she said, is my mother in there, is my mother in there? I couldn't tell her, but I had just seen her only minutes beforehand. And um, then she was, you know, very upset, of course, crying and, you know, and we just hugged her. And then um, Joe Didham, who we worked with, who's got two little children, two little girls, her father was in the area and he arrived. This is all minutes later. And he arrived and he said, you know, it's my girl in there, it's my girl in there. And her father was, you know, upset as, as you can imagine. And then um, we sort of stood there for a while and um, emergency services had arrived by this stage and um, they moved us on to Latimer Square. Ended up travelling the wrong way up Madras Street and across into Latimer Square. Craig Stockdale is on his way to set up the emergency triage centre, but it's been a slow journey for him. It was quite surreal. Really my first time out driving on the roads, trying to get through the traffic in the central city. It was, it was pretty much gridlocked. It was just a mess of rubble and crushed cars. And passers-by, people he comes across, want, need his help. And people would stop you. There were, there were people in the streets saying there are people hurt down here. I had to kind of keep... It, the hardest thing in the world for me was to keep focused on some of the, the bigger picture job. And I had to say to people, look, we will either get to you when we can or your best bet is to drag them out and just take them to hospital. You're trying to sort of think, what else has happened? I can only see little pockets and if I become too engrossed in helping one person at one spot, you kind of lose that picture. That was really tough for me as a practitioner because normally it's it's one-on-one -on -one with a patient and you do your best for that person, you know, and care for them to actually have to bypass people or just leave them where they were was, was really pretty, pretty tough. He gets to Latimer Square and he and his colleagues start to organise resources at the Hereford Street end of it. And that was quite an overwhelming job. There was just so much happening and so many people there at the time and trying to work out who was in need of help and who was just standing around. And Luckily, I was introduced to a doctor and he had been at a conference in the Grand Chancellor, and he said to me, he said, right, he said, I've got 22 doctors and nurses here. We've got ourselves under these tarpaulins and we're treating these people, but we've got no equipment. And I thought, well, fantastic. You know, I said to him, well, I've got all this equipment arriving and in a truck, and I can set you up a hospital, if you like. They put up two large inflatable tents. There are ambulances, staff, and equipment for mass casualty incidents. The police were really good. They just came and said, what do you need? You know, and I said, I want this area here sealed off, the possibility of a helicopter landing area over here, toilets. And the next hour is spent getting ready for what will be an influx of wounded people. Now, some of our staff were clearly put out by that, that we had a team of doctors and nurses there and that they weren't necessarily the ones working in there. But we had enough jobs to do 
I saw our role as having to provide a lot of logistics for this transport medium. This hospital that we built was only a, a stabilising centre. It wasn't definitive care by any means. It provided shelter and it provided good basic equipment. No x-rays or anything like that. So these people then needed to be shifted either to Christchurch Hospital or elsewhere. And they needed ambulances to do that. Craig does have some concerns about the smoke drifting in from the CTV site. Unfortunately, there was sort of a bit of a southerly and it was coming up that way. Now, you know, I was questioned earlier on, early on about the suitability of the site, you know, because of the health and safety risks of the smoke. And I'm like, well, cripes, where else are we going to go? So we felt that given the risks of the smoke um, and hurting your eyes and we had masks on, that this was still the best place for us to be. But for people working on the CTV building, the fire is making a horrendous situation even worse. Dave Berry. You had that toxic smoke, you had smoke around, you had the flames, you were trying to extinguish the fire, you are trying to rescue the people, you had teams working on really ugly environment of all that smoke in it and they just continued working. They've also started to make inroads into the building itself, or what's left of it. I tunnelled your way in on that fourth floor, which is only, you know, my height, and we started bracing and just realising what the enormity of it was then, how many people were in there. There was a crew working there and there was a crew, another civilians and contractors working to the side of them. Then I realised that that crew was dealing with a deceased, so we just made the call that we won't recover deceased bodies unless they're um, in the way of a live patient. Because the priority now has to be the people who might survive. So we started that and they tunnelled their way in, taking it in relays. You know, guys would go in, talk to them, shore it up, brace it. You know, we pulled a few live ones out, which was good. We did see some people being rescued from the building while we were in the car park, but it was just horrific. Marianne Jackson watches some of the rescue efforts before leaving for Latimer Square. I saw an Asian guy with two little children. All of a sudden his head popped up out of rubble and... People did run up and help him and, and get the children out too. So that was good. So we actually thought they'd be rescued. We thought, you know, because we'd seen someone being rescued and someone appeared out of nowhere, we thought, you know, they would get them out. We thought they could be in a pocket in there somewhere, hoping that they would be. The contractors and fire crews are trying to find those pockets. They're also creating new crawl spaces to move into. Dave Berry. Real narrow space mm-hmm. that they crawled through mm-hmm. um, and we shored and braced as we went because there were a lot of aftershocks, of course, and, you know, you're stuck in under there. The biggest thing was when they got somebody out and um, was trying to get information from them. Hey, there's the language barrier because we basically were at that language school and, of course, they were being whipped away pretty quick. We need to find out how many were there, where they were and what part they were located in the building. And I must say, you know, we would have been lost without the contractors because they helped with their equipment and their saws and all those sorts of things. Just keep looking. By that time, some police were there. We're up there. Tahu Huriwai is one of the contractors who's working alongside the rescuers. And I remember one of the, I suppose, more senior police were telling us to get off there and now the police that we were working with because the fire was right next to us. It was getting bigger and everyone was coughing, lots of smoke and couldn't breathe. Untimely, it was time to get off there. We could see a hand sticking up, nothing else, like right, sort of in the fire. 
so nobody would leave, you know, we're trying to get out. We weren't worrying about the fire. And then um, we're up there for quite a while and people had gone to the surrounding buildings and that and got the little fire extinguishers out and things and they started getting thrown up there so we all had a fire extinguisher. <laughs> so we sort of had to spray at the fire then kept digging. And then hyper wet towels and they're telling us to wrap them around the face and that, you know, try and breathe through them. They managed to free the person whose hand they can see. There's still lots of other people you could hear. There's lots of noise and every aftershock we kept looking up at the lift shaft that was still there and watching it sway and thinking it's going to fall on us. Trying to run, but couldn't really go anyway. Next thing I knew, sort of my boss, Bruce, sure just showed up on my shoulder and was like, mate, you all right? James, on top of the building. He thought my workmate was under the pile of rubble. Of course, that's going through his head. He was freaking out. It wasn't until then that I'd thought about the other boys that we work with. They were on a dental clinic over in Aranui. That hadn't even gone through my head. They had a pack of iron fall off a roof. Um, all of them jumped across like a tennis court fence onto a tarsiel. But yeah, Bruce was freaking out. He thought Lenny was in the pile of rubble, but obviously he wasn't. He was gone, so we sort of walked away from it, got the ute out of it, and by that stage there was nothing we could do. He was like, look, you need to get home to your family. As these first hours tick by, a block away at Latimer Square, Craig Stockdale is getting more and more information about the devastation around town. Now a lot of it, you didn't know how accurate it was. You know, people would come up to you and say, oh, I've seen people trapped in buildings down the road. And, you know, I had a lot of things sort of going through my mind that I kind of wanted the world to just stop for a minute so I could take check of everything and try and organise myself. But it was like you were running on a log in a river, you know, and, and, or a, a hamster in a wheel. It just went on and on and on. And then, of course, you combine that with the fact that, that we had some nasty aftershocks during this time. A couple of them, you know, I was trying to communicate with Auckland and the place would just shake and you'd stop looking around at the buildings thinking, you know, what else is going to come down and where are my staff? From my perspective, there's a fair amount of guilt about the fact that I actually didn't treat a patient that day. Not one single person because I ended up in a sort of leadership role running the operation at Latimer Square meant that I really couldn't allow myself to get tied up in patient treatment. As people flood into Latimer Square, Marianne Jackson recognises some familiar faces. A few people we knew and clients and everything. And then Emily we worked with who works in our newsroom. She's a young girl, gorgeous girl. She came running along absolutely hysterical. She was filming on the other side of town and didn't know that CTV building was down. And her good friend, Reese, he started working the week before in the newsroom. He'd won awards and everything in journalism. And he's a lovely guy and he'd only been there a week and he was in the building and she was hysterical over that because they'd been at university together and he was a close friend. And he's only 20-something, and you know, 26 or something. And and it was just horrific. You know, they were all just gorgeous people, too young to die. Some of the others, Marianne has worked with for more than a decade. We socialised together and we had lots of fun. So I've got lots of good memories. And um, there were Jojo, she's a hard case. We used to have lots of fun. And Bish, Andrew Bishop, he was talented. He was, he was the same age as my son. Great sense of humour, always playing jokes on people and 
and he was very talented. Yeah, it's, it's such a waste. And, you know, there were mothers with children and fathers and just so sad. And um, we were like one big family. We, we all got on. We had a good time together and we worked hard and, you know, we'd have a drink on a Friday night and things after work and, you know, we all sort of cared about each other and, you know, we, we were a great team. I miss him. Remember flying into Christchurch and looking out the window. Richard Austin, who's caught a ride on an air ambulance. And you'd just see this big pool of smoke over the city, and I just looked out and I thought, God, that's CTV building. Now I didn't even know it started burning at that point. So um, anyway, we landed and I rang Matt, my son, and he came and collected me. And we drove into town, so this is probably about maybe 4.30, and it was, you know, chaos on that day, obviously. And they had the police stopping people going in, and so I said, look, um, you know, my wife's in that building, and I need to get there. So this policeman obviously looked at me and saw how serious I was. So he said, oh, you better jump in the back of the car. So we drove into Latimer Square. And they had a sort of triage tent up at that point and there were a lot of people running around. You could see bits of the CTV building, but you couldn't go out and stand up against it, but it was obviously down and it was burning. And, and then the big stairwell, this lift well in that building, was almost like a chimney and there was just these flames pouring out of the top of it. And I still had a lot of faith that Susan would be all right at that point. So I started texting her, and, um, and I um, texted her every hour, just saying, look, we're nearly there, and keep going. Working away in the smoke and debris, Tahu Huriwai has also been thinking and worrying about his family, and it's a relief when he hears from them. When I was on top of the CTV building, they rang me, and that was, that was good to hear that they were all right. And Tahu's family are pleased to know he's OK. Well, I said, I'll talk to them later, I was more worried about once knew they were all right, lots of other people that went. And the little kids come out, sort of made me think about my own son and that. Because amidst all the chaos and rubble, Tahu and his workmate Dan Perry find a mother and two children. There's a little boy and a little girl. I remember carrying a little boy down. He was shaking and wouldn't let go of me. The kids are actually all right. Didn't cry or anything. Dan Perry. Probably about six or seven, girl and boy, brother, sister. They were shocked, but they didn't cry. But the mum, she was a bit, yeah, she was a bit hysterical. It's a morale boost for the guys, because the work is starting to take its toll. There's a lot of blood and you know, arms and legs, and it's like going to war, really, but not being in war. It was, um, yeah, nah, not really much relief, not till really a couple of days afterwards, because you're just surrounded. It was quite depressing, really. They're surrounded by, you know, devastation and, you know, um, a lot of people crying and just injured dead people. Dan is struggling too with the thought that he could have been among the dead. He and Tahu are used to having lunch between 12 and 12.30, but they've got a new foreman who does things a bit differently. And so Dan and another workmate come down from the scaffolding on St Paul's Church a bit later than usual, around 12.30. I've been working up on the roof and a couple of other guys about maybe 10, 15 minutes before the earthquake. 
and we were on the scaffold and that whole scaffold on Madras side of the church, Madras Street, it all fell into Madras Street and the whole roof collapsed in. So I've probably been working out they probably died along with other people. So that was probably the most difficult thing. Mm-hmm. It was hard pulling people out, but at the time it was probably the most difficult. But after you know, sort of a couple of days of thinking about it, so they probably escaped death sort of thing, yeah. like a lot of people did. It's real chaotic, really. What's that place? There's Latimer Square. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of people in Latimer Square. They piled up a lot of people in Latimer Square just to get them out of the CBD, you know, into a safe zone. Craig Stockdale's also still in Latimer Square, running the treatment centre and trying to handle all the volunteers who've come to help. I found that really tough, just sort of trying to keep people out of buildings. You know, staff wanted to go and get gear, put hats on and go and search buildings. I said, you can't do that. This is a USAR job. You know, USAR will be on the ground and set up within a matter of hours, you know, and we need to take a long-term look at this, not a short-term. You know, this is something we hear for uh, for hours, maybe days, rather than an uh, hour. Normal ambulance capacity, it's less than an hour. And I think it was quite a lot of emotion and, and stress involved around that. And those difficult decisions keep coming. I remember having, as the day, as the end of the day for me was drawing to a close, somewhere around six or seven, a girl had been pulled out of the, 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 the building uh, and she was severely injured. And by the time they were ready to transport her from our hospital, or our stabilising point, they were having to resuscitate her. And, you know, I said to the doctors, I, you know, they'd done a, a really excellent job in trying to stabilise her, but she just continued to deteriorate. And I said, you know, that Christchurch Hospital are no longer taking critically ill patients. They're being flown now to Dunedin or Wellington. I said, you know, we can't justify a helicopter for this woman if she's being resuscitated. You know, the chances of her surviving are, are very remote. You know, so we had to make the tough decision of basically putting her into the back of the tent and they sat with her and held her hand while she died. So there were a number of, you know, tough decisions where you think, my God, you know, people have risked their lives digging her out, you know, doing all that. And for us then to turn around and say, can't get her to Wellington, you know. It was really hard, but that was the kind of the reality of the situation. So I think that, um, you know, there's a few things that, that plague you, I guess, in retrospect, but you do, you make these decisions with the, the best knowledge that you have at the time and the best sort of understanding uh, that you have. Tahu Huriwai reluctantly leaves the CTV site in the early evening. He will later be commended for his part in the rescue effort, but at the moment, it feels tough to leave. Going home that night, that was the hardest. Yeah, felt bad. My vehicle was parked on Barbados Street, and so I drove home. I was going to leave at the accident thing about driving anywhere. That did take me, I don't know, over an hour. Usually takes me about five minutes. Just felt guilty for leaving. Not trying to do more. But my family were glad to see me. As people begin to leave the CTV site and Latimer Square, 
Richard Austin is just arriving with his son Matt. They're desperate to find Susan. Matt and I stayed there all night um, and it was raining and there's a lot of aftershocks and it's pretty cold. It was like hell really. The triage tent that was initially bringing people into it and there's a lot of screaming and you know, carnage and then they kept telling me that they're finding survivors in the building, so that was good. But I, um, I walked along a bit on Latimer Square and I looked down this alleyway because I was trying to calculate where Susan's office would have been. And so she was on the fourth floor at the back of the building. And so when I looked down this alleyway, I could tell that that's where her office would have been if the building was still up. And when I you just looked at the rubble there and the smoke pouring out of it, I really thought, man, I just knew she was in there and I knew she wasn't coming out. Still, Richard can't leave. I still keep some hope going. And so I um, spent all night there. All we did, we had sort of like refugees. We had these blankets around us and just all night and... There were a lot of ambulances going, taking people away, obviously, to the morgue. And there was a lot of lights on there, a lot of flames. The smoke was really acrid, and it was it was a terrible sort of scene. By now, James has arrived home. It's a relief for his mates to see him back safely. There's actually a couple of photos, and I think it was the star of um, one of our workmates, um, he's wearing a high as well. He's showed up to the CTV building where he'd been probably half an hour before the earthquake. He'd come in to pick up stuff off us to go to his job, so he knew exactly where we were working. And he looked at the cherry picker that we were on, which was near like this high off the ground, squashed. And he just, you see the photo of him, he's just a wreck. And obviously he thought we were, I was working with his brother, he thought we were under the rubble. Um, He's my next neighbour. I got, I got home, heard the ute come up the driveway, he jumps the fence, and it was like, wow, great to see people like that. Um, that was my day over. <laughs> Time to forget about it, have a few drinks. He wonders, with hindsight, if he could have helped more. I don't know, you've got to be proud of what you did, but at the same time, I've got to think that, you know, possibly there's a lot more we could have done. You know, maybe we should have stuck around longer and helped out with the search and rescue and stuff like that, but I don't know. From where we were at the situation, we'd done what we could do for the time. And, yeah, it was sort of time to get home and sort out your own life, see what else was happening around your instant family. Although the thought of those in the CTV building who didn't come home is sobering. For all the people that you see coming out, there's a lot of people in that building. Yeah, didn't find out till later, obviously, how many people were actually in there. But, yeah, I remember the day before, one of the guys from the CTV building had actually come out and said to us, you know, you guys are making a whole lot of noise. We were talking to him, having a laugh about it, and, uh, yeah, didn't see him come out. He never came out. Um, I actually don't remember his name, but, yeah, it was sort of... That, that's one of the things that hit home, seeing someone's face one day and the next day knowing that they're not here anymore. At Latimer Square, someone offers Marianne Jackson a ride home to the suburb of Mount Pleasant, about ten minutes to the east. I was too scared to go up on my own, so he drove me up there. It was a mess windows, all my sunroom lead light windows are gone, big bay windows blowing out and, you know, everything was tipped upside down. And I didn't know where to start. I just didn't want to be there. 
she gets dropped at a friend's house. They spend the evening talking about people they both know who work inside the CTV building and hoping for an update on the rescue effort. I knew no one followed me, but I didn't know who was out working or out for lunch. So she found a transistor and we listened to the radio because we had no power and we put blankets around us and we stayed outside because we were too scared to be inside because the, the aftershocks were so horrendous. At the CTV site, Dave Berry is still searching through the building looking for survivors. So we kept tunnelling through. Um, time was flying at this stage, I didn't even know what time it was, but tunnelled through and basically there were two big slabs of concrete on top of these you know, two floors compressed. The guys had tunnelled in so far that it was nerve-wracking that, hey, if there's an aftershock, we wouldn't be able to pull them back out or get them out quick enough. When they come to someone they can't move, they use a digger to nibble away the top layer of concrete and everyone helps to break it up and pull the debris away. So we had one clear, about four to six inch slab left, uh, measured where the person was under the ground, Anyway, basically, and then we um, cut a holes just before them and a big hole in the concrete so we could get, and then broke that up and pulled it out so we could get access there and carry on. And that's where we came across one of the Asian guys that had his legs really jammed. By now it's quite late at night. And that's when we made the um, decision to call somebody because it probably be an amputation, you know, so um, we called the medics. And it was fine, they went down and had a look, um, and they agreed. And Dave gets another opinion, just to be sure. Just so that you can confirm it, because as I said, it's a big decision. Um, and there's definitely no way we could get his legs was quite flat, so there's no way we'd um, get him out unless we did that amputation. So we called the doctor. She went down and had a look. As she had a look, there's an aftershock. So she got a bit nervy, so we tied a rope around her and said that we'll pull her out in the event of an aftershock or anything like that. Uh, so we set that all up, and that took a while, and they did that. The doctor went down, did the invitation, got them straight out, um, wrapped them up straight out. He survived and went straight back to Japan. So um, that's pretty good. Dave finally leaves the CTV building at about three in the morning. But just hours later, he's back at the site. And by now, it's an international operation as new urban search and rescue teams join the effort. Yeah, I was back at the base at 8 o'clock where we went into Latimer Square and I did the um, tasking for the international teams and um, the New Zealand task force arrived that night. Um, the Australians were pretty quick and we just gave them, allocated their task from there. For Mary Ann Jackson, it's a restless night. We never slept a wink. I listened to the radio all night thinking, you know, they'll find, they'll, they will rescue them, they'll get them out. And uh, we had a few wines and we just, um, you know, we had no power, we, we sat with candles and we made a space on the floor in between the broken glass and the broken china. The next morning she makes some calls, trying to get information on her missing colleagues see if who knew who got out and who didn't and um, and then it you know we found out there were 16 in the building 16 of our staff members and uh, we were just absolutely you know devastated by that we were still holding out that they would you know be rescued 
And all this time, Richard Austin has been waiting at the CTV site, hoping for news of his wife Susan. I stayed there for about 30 hours waiting and eventually they came and said, look, we're down to the third floor and there aren't any survivors there and I'm really sorry to tell you that. And so what was interesting was during that time, John Campbell was there doing an interview in the morning at about six in the morning and he looked up from this interview and he saw me and he quickly finished his interview and came over because he'd remembered me from the day before and he said, you know, how are you going? And I said, oh, it doesn't look too good. And he sort of looked at me and then he burst into tears and he grabbed me and he's sobbing on my shoulder. I'll never forget this. And I thought, God. So we had a bit of a cry together and then um, I, yeah, didn't see him for a while. Um, so a lot of people there and but it was pretty gloomy news, obviously. He stays a bit longer, but somehow knows there's no more hope of Susan coming home. When they had come and told me that there weren't any survivors left, and I knew Susan was still there, so for me it was almost like confirmation. And so the operation at CTV becomes a recovery process rather than a rescue. Phone Tony and he was already on his way to a job in Portals Road and I said, what are we doing? Peter Riley, who you met in episode two, and his friend Tony Tamakehu are about to get involved. The pair have already spent hours on the day of the quake helping to get people out of the PGC building. He said, sit tight, there's a site in town, it's messy, and we're waiting for the go-ahead to go in there. And that became the CTV site. We'd known, we could, from where we were at the Pinegall Guinness site, we saw the smoke and we knew from the radios, from the fire guys, that it, it was pretty bad over there. And Tony and I just had this unspoken understanding that we'd go there because in Maori culture, it's all about getting the ones that are deceased back to their families for, for closure and we just knew without saying that was why we were there. Peter gets taken to the building on Thursday morning. One of the boys picked me up and he said, oh, you know, can you handle, you know, there's a fair bit of, uh, it's pretty untidy, can you handle you know, this? And I, I didn't say anything. He didn't know that I'd been on the Pinegall Guinness. I said, I said, yeah, we'll, we'll get in and have a look. And got to the side. If you can imagine the kids' game of pick up sticks, and that site was like, instead of pick up sticks, it was concrete beams and concrete floors weighing tens of ton. And the site had to be deconstructed in a manner with precision that the bodies that were caught in there, the police could systematically slowly go through. It wasn't a straight demolition, it was pretty complex. At home, Richard is struggling with Susan's absence. And that was really hard because, you know, there's the washing all folded up and it's just like she'd 
shut down to the shops or something, you know. It was, um, it was pretty difficult. Yeah, it was sort of in a bit of a blur at that point. But obviously at, at that time, um, Susan's family, living, um, a few of them living in Christchurch, um, they were all sort of gathering and, you know, they were pretty upset. The next day, the police pay Richard a visit. Susan still hasn't been found, but they tell him they'll do whatever they can to help, and they take him back to the CTV site so he can talk to search and rescue. The whole city was red zoned, sealed off, and they were still searching for bodies in the city. And that really hit me how devastated the city was. And they, were, they still had bodies on the footpaths covered up with tarpaulins at that point because I was so busily looking for people. Peter Riley is already working on the site alongside international USAR teams and a disaster victim identification or DVI squad. And it was the DVI's job to handle the, any bodies or any, any trauma. And the first thing I saw was, was pretty traumatic and from then on I was able to handle, um, I don't know whether I turned off or what I did, but something happened to me that I was able to see for what it is. And knowing that it was just needing to get people out and home to their loved ones was, was the driver. Peter and the other contractors work closely with engineers to understand what can be lifted and when and where, and all that information gets collated. It takes time, and it's not the kind of environment civilians would normally be allowed into. It couldn't be like that because there was in, they needed other another skill set. And as the days early days went on and the DBI squads, squads rotated, they found it very hard to comprehend civilians allowed on that site with them. And, and probably after the fourth day, an understanding became and basically everyone was part of a team to achieve a, a goal at the end. A significant moment comes on the following Tuesday at 12.51, exactly a week after the quake. All the Police officers, firemen, USAR squad were lined up from Latimer Square along Madras Street, then in front of Cashel Street to Les Mills, shoulder to shoulder, and as a remembrance, it was just so powerful. And Tony and I were standing back because you know we're not USAR or or um, or police or firemen and. The USAR guys came and got us and put us in line and they had people from every country. So the Kiwis were all separated, so you're, you're standing by England, uh, Australian, Japanese or whoever. It was just such a poignant, poignant moment. Powerful. And Dave Berry is there too with Urban Search and Rescue. He works for 20-odd days, a combination of day and night shifts. At the same time, while the CTV recovery operation takes place, Marianne Jackson is attending funerals. Two weeks of funerals. Sometimes two a day, 
and that was devastating. It was heart-wrenching, as you can imagine. Um, I'll never forget, never forget it in all my life. So, you know, and I'm in contact with a lot of the families now. We contact them and see how they're going, and they ring us, and, you know, we're all good friends. We keep, we support each other. We're a tight little unit, and we care and look after each other. And, um, yeah, we're a great team. And just weeks after the earthquake, with the help of borrowed equipment, the TV station is back up and running. We've been lucky because we have had lots of support, but we've just done so well. <laughs> I think we, um, you know, we've been guided by them. We've, they're helping us, I think. I'm sure they're helping us. Mary Ann is not the only one sensing a kind of presence. Tony and I, as we're travelling home at night, we were pretty uneasy. Building contractor Peter Riley. From a Māori perspective, from a cultural perspective, it wasn't until the first Sunday after, Tony picked me up and he said, did you have any visitors? I said, yeah, yeah, I have, mate. And he said, yeah, I was out walking a dog last night and I think we need to do something about it. So I got there on Sunday morning and I approached MJ. I said, oh, MJ. MJ is Mike Johnson, the police officer who has responsibility for the site. I said, oh, is it, is it possible to have a clearing for the site for the Maori priest? And he looked at me, he looked at me again and he said, good idea. Then every hour he'd report back to me, he said, I've got hold of HQ, we're doing this, we're doing this. There has been one for the whole city, but I said, no, 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 it's got to be for here, MJ, it's got to be for here. And it happened. And we had the Japanese USAR squad, the Chinese, and they were interpreting what was happening for this clearing. And something lifted on both of us. The clearing happens at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We were about 3.30. I was in front of the Blackwall's, Blackwall Motors showroom, standing in Madras Street, uh, and I looked down towards Latimer Square. And I saw this figure of a woman walking down towards Latimer Square, and her dress was torn and hair, and she looked, looked back at me. I just took a double tip, and, and intuitively I knew what it was. And I sort of held it in, and I just went over to Tony and just said what I'd seen. And two weeks later, there's an article in the paper where a husband had a photo of his wife, and that was the person that I saw. From that day, the heaviness had went for both Tony and I, and how do you explain these things? I don't know, you talk about, you know, but it just reaffirmed that we were there to get everyone home. For some families, that takes a while. Because of the fire in the building, it's five weeks until Richard's wife, Susan, is identified. Which was a really hard time because while I knew she'd gone, I didn't, I mean, I really wanted to have a funeral. And uh, so there was a chance that she wouldn't have been found. And I really feel for the, the four or five people who haven't ever got their loved ones back. It's, yeah, it's pretty tough. But Susan Selway is identified. 
So we were able to have a funeral and it was an amazing celebration of her life. It was really... Very good. In all, 115 people die in the CTV building on February the 22nd, 2011. It's a full decade now since that devastating day and Richard says he's accepted what happened to Susan, but it's taken years. Like everyone, I had no idea what sort of trauma would be like and um, you don't realise until you have to go through it that um, how you react and, and what it will do to you, but certainly for a while it was very hard to accept that Susan had been killed in such horrendous circumstances. Richard's strongest memory of February the 22nd is actually an emotion. That sense of hope fading. I mean, Susan was a really resilient, amazing person, and when I first arrived, I thought, oh, well, if anyone can get out of that building, Susan will. You know, she'll know. She'll work away how to escape from it all. And But as that went on, um, that that confidence in her ability to do that and because of the sort of person she was, slowly started ebbing away as the hours went by. So it was probably the strongest feeling was um, hope fading. He has a strong feeling of wanting to carry on with life and it's because of Susan. She'd be furious with me if I um, you know, curled up in a ball and, you know, as much for a long time you didn't even want to get out of bed, let alone interact with anyone. And I could hear her telling me um, not to do that. So it's been a, an amazing closeness with her, actually, even though she's not here. He is frustrated, though, by the lack of accountability over the collapse of the CTV building. There has been no resolution for families of the victims. If there is a culpability or a responsibility, then you'd expect, I'm, a, I'm from a professional background, you know, you'd expect professional people to stand up and take responsibility. So that's been something that I haven't let it dominate my thinking, but it's definitely always in the background. Whānau, friends and colleagues threw their support around Richard and his family after Susan's death. But that inevitably eased off over time. No one can sustain that level of care year after year. It's almost like when you have a big event in your life, as it gets resolved, it's like the circus leaves town. Um, yeah, because there's so much going on, it's just incredible. And you've got all your friends, you've got family, you've got the authorities, you've got... it was just overload. But as that all slowly ebbs away naturally and people start you know, getting things resolved or getting on with their life, it's like the circus has definitely left town and you're left on your own, um, which I found personally the hardest part of it, having to live suddenly and very suddenly on your own again without any preparation for it. But I always knew that with that grief I had to let it um, let it wash over me, you know, you can't, I, I decided you, I didn't want to run away from it or try to ignore it or, and so slowly each day it does slowly get better. And um, you do find that as it slowly ebbs away, um, that you start finding real joy in other things. Richard is closer than ever to his family and has a new partner too, a friend of his late wife, 
Not a day goes by that he doesn't think of Susan. She's still with him, he says, which is a great feeling. Richard is happy to talk about Susan and his grief because he hopes it will help people in similar situations. If there's a wider legacy to the earthquake, he thinks it's a bond among those who were in the city that day. Everyone has a story to tell. Richard feels a sense of Christchurch drawing closer together. We all have a choice, and the choice is how we want to be affected by something. So in other words, things happen to us, to everyone, at, at different times in their lives. But we all get a choice as to how we want to react to it and how we want it to become part of our psyche. And that, for some people, unfortunately, can be a negative thing. And they become very cynical and they become very you know, afraid of everything. In my observation, a lot of people in Canterbury have decided to use it in a really positive way. Peter Riley has left Christchurch. No, not living in Christchurch. Uh, change of lifestyle, change of values, change of perspective on how I see things. Christchurch got too busy. The pace of life didn't suit him, so he moved to a quiet spot inland from Timaru, where he can ride horses and pay attention to the important things in life. And yes, February the 22nd played a big part in that decision. Oh, it's the day. The day and the um, four weeks after being involved with the well, with the rescue and the recovery, basically, that set my value systems then. And the, the 12 months after, it was just trying to get a compass bearing on where I wanted to be and what was, what was important. Peter remembers that in the midst of the chaos of that day, he felt a total clarity about what needed to be done. For whatever reason, everything just fell into place. I don't know why, I don't know how. And every time something had to, a decision had to be made, we were making the right decisions. But on that day, I can't say there could have been anything Porter wanted done differently. But despite that, he struggled with what he saw. Yeah, just total unbelief, disbelief. In my mind, I kept thinking, oh, next Wednesday, next week, they'll be back in there and it wasn't until about 11 o'clock at night that I dawned on me that that's not going to be the case and I couldn't see past what would happen what would be happening over the next months I could couldn't comprehend what might happen Peter's glad he agreed to be interviewed in 2011 it helped him understand that he was traumatized and needed to let go of some things once I started talking, I realised it was a outlet. I could lift the burden and, and talk. I just, I just spoke. It was like a, a therapy session for me. And I could tell someone. He does wish he'd said something to the man who died in front of him on the roof of the PGC building. Peter's not shy about saying he still carries baggage from 10 years ago. He feels it every day. You know, it might be a noise, it might be a, a smell, it might be um, any number of things, so it takes you back. Not in a way that it's got a detrimental effect on you, but it just 
you do dwell on it time to time and I, I don't think they'll ever disappear but it's not totally unhealthy it just it's just like resetting you reset yourself Peter's not that fussed about his Heroism Award, but respects the city's need to say thank you. He prefers the understanding he shares with people who are there with him, like Tony Tamakehu, Tim Smith, and the rest of the team. They don't talk much about what happened. They don't need to. Everyone already knows and understands. Tim Smith said something powerful to me. We know what we did, and that's all matters. And it took me a while to... I understand what he's talking about, but it resonates with me now. We never did it to be heroes. We just did it because it had to be done. And there were others that day who did what they needed to do to escape danger and to find family members. You can sort of tell the people who have done stuff because they stand out because they've got big eyes. As we started to get closer to home, I started to really get this fear and this serious knot in my stomach. And it was unanimous, let's get out if we can. I didn't want the kids to see what had happened in town. I didn't want them to see if there were any bodies. That wasn't fair on them. What do you mean people are dead? They can't be dead, my daughter's in there. Those stories next time on Fragments, first-hand accounts of the February 2011 earthquake. Fragments is written and presented by me, Katie Gossett, and co-produced by myself and Justin Gregory. It's engineered by Alex Harmer and Rangi Powick, and Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series. Thanks to Julie Hutton and Sandra Close for their work in recording interviews, and to Nate McKinnon for additional recording and video work. We'd also like to thank James, Richard Austin, Marianne Jackson, Tahu Huriwai, Dan Perry, Dave Berry, Craig Stockdale and Peter Riley for sharing their personal stories to create this record of the fatal Christchurch earthquake on February the 22nd, 2011. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.